Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream, our 69th. Dr. Heather Hying, how goes it? It goes pretty well. How All about right. you, love? Well, you know, it's it's going reasonably well. A little hectic this week, as you know, but, uh, you know, it's um, it's all happening. We're still here. Let's put it that way. We are still here. Those of you who are watching are apparently still here, or at least you're still there, wherever there may be. Interesting. Yes. No, I think that's, uh, I think you nailed it. It's uh, <laughs> fully described. <laughs> True and uninteresting. True, possibly uninteresting. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, today we're going to talk about power, race, and social media. Right. We're going to talk For about better or worse. COVID mortality and pre-existing conditions a little bit. Uh, we are going to review a truly sexist obituary oh and what goodness. we should do about it. Yes. Um, and uh, review a new finding in octopi or octopodes or octopuses. They're all apparently legitimate pluralizations of octopus. As luck would have it, I was speaking with Eric about um, octopi mm-hmm. yesterday and he prefers octopoids which i think is legitimate i that is not one of the ones that i ran into as i was looking for the proper pluralization i'm sure there are right. many 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 but the three that i just said are the most usual pluralizations of octopus let us agree to drive everyone crazy with octopuses which is it's one of the legitimate pluralizations i know but it drives everyone crazy because everybody feels sophisticated saying octopi i think I'm going to go with octopodes then. Octopodes. All right. Mm-hmm. Cool. So first, though, um, if you are interested in more Q&A after the Q&A that follows today's live stream, we are having our monthly two-hour private Q&A that you can access through my Patreon, Heather Hying, uh, tomorrow at 11 a.m. Pacific. And uh, and next week, you will have your Patreon conversations. Um, and there was maybe one more announcement before we launch into today. Uh, let's see. There's at least one more announcement. One is we will be giving away another um, Clubhouse invite to anyone who wants it. They will be immediately useful to somebody who's got an iPhone. Apparently, it doesn't work on iPad, which strikes me as odd, but nonetheless. Um, Android is uh, the Clubhouse app. Only I have heard different. You have heard different. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I know nothing about this except that I have heard from people who are using uh, iPads that it's working. Okay, interesting. I looked it up the other day and I could find no evidence of that, but I hope it does work on iPads. But in any case, even if you have an Android phone, uh, you're welcome to uh, enter our drawing for this by entering the hashtag clubhouse in the chat, and then a winner will be selected at the end of the broadcast. Um, was that the other announcement? Yep. All right, so then we've uh, we've done it. All right, let's... Um, <laughs> I wanted to start out with, <laughs> you're giving me that look. I'm just laughing. But you're not thinking about divorce? No. Okay, no. good. All right, then I'm, I'm cool with it. I can, I can handle the look. Um, so, all right, let's uh, start out with a little consideration of power. And I must tell you that I'm thinking about this um, because of an event that took place yesterday on Clubhouse. And before you all change the channel, those of you who don't want to hear about Clubhouse, let As me just... As I predicted some people would. Right. And I get it. I get it. But here's what I want to tell you before you, you, you click away, right? If somebody was to start talking to you about face mash in 2003, 
you could well have the correct reaction. I want no part of hearing about this. That sounds awful, and it's uh, not something I'm interested in. On the other hand, if you fast forward to 2021, and you realize that FaceMash becomes Facebook, and for better or worse, starts altering the way the world understands itself, then being in on that discussion early on... Hold on. Was it really called FaceMash? Yes. Okay. <laughs> that's that's one point of order. Uh, second is just because the thing became important doesn't mean that everything that happens on it in its early instantiation is important. Also, what about my place or whatever MySpace was called before? <laughs> like, I have no idea what any of these things were called, and obviously most of them are disappeared. So, um, so you know, I, I mean, I mean you, you and I, this is actually one of the one of the places that you and I differ the most, that I am, I, I hold myself intentionally at arm's length from almost all of the new stuff in order to retain my ability to think clearly and do creative work over in this space. Like, I just don't want that polluting my head. So uh, I am, I am not buying into the like, obviously, you need to pay attention to anything you heard about face smash. Wait, wait, Seriously, wait, wait. face smash? Yeah, I think so. I think so. <sighs> um, I'm not saying anything. Like so many things that matter, yep. the vast bulk of what takes place there, and even one of the strengths of the platform is the ephemeral nature of what takes place there. We're talking about face mesh now? No. <laughs> we are now talking about Clubhouse. Okay. Um, but my point is, Clubhouse doesn't know what it is yet. Even the people who've programmed it don't really know what it's going to end up being. At the moment, it appears to be crashing into podcast world right? We have all sorts of people coming through. We hit, Last week, um, Bill Gates was on. Sam Harris was on. Uh, earlier, we had Joe Rogan. Um, Elon Musk has been there. And all of these things have played out very differently. I would say Bill Gates uh, told us nothing we didn't already know from Bill Gates. On the other hand, Elon Musk interacted, as you might imagine, as somebody who is a denizen of the new online world, right? He actually participated uh, with people. So anyway, something is happening there, and it's figuring out what it is. And my point is, even if your, your understanding is that this is just a bad development, which it may well be, it's a development that is going to have a profound impact on your life, even if it's not Clubhouse. Now, it happens that Facebook and Twitter are now competing directly with Clubhouse. Clubhouse having discovered that there is apparently a hunger for conversations that are somewhere between Twitter space um, and podcast space. And so there's this jockeying for position. And my point is, even if it's all bad, right, what it is going to be is unfolding. And you know, it's very hard to move Twitter or Facebook now, right? They're too powerful. They're too big. Um, but in the early days, the community that was there had influence. So uh, again, I, I don't want to be in a position of defending this. This may be the next level of derangement of civilization that's coming. But at the moment, it's happening in real time. It's changing. I, I think both are likely. Could well be. Could well be. In any case, um, the event... So let me just set the stage for those who have not paid any attention to what Clubhouse is. Zach, do you want to put up that screenshot I sent you? Okay, so this is not the uh, room in which things went insane yesterday. This is a room that is actually, I think, currently on Clubhouse. Contains some good people, uh, some people I know. Maceo there is somebody uh, well familiar. You see a nice... Uh, a mixed group of people, men, women, racially mixed. Um, in any case, these guys, I don't know what's going on in this room, but these people are running some sort of an experiment about how to affect room dynamics, right? Um, okay, so yesterday what took place 
So what you see on the screen have is... Have you said, like, I, since I have not been on it, I, I don't think you have said that it's voice only and that it's ephemeral. I mean, maybe you said it was ephemeral. I'm about to explain okay. it. So there are rooms. The rooms that you see to go into are rooms that involve people that you follow. There is a wrinkle that there's the ability to block people. And I think if anybody on the stage has blocked you, you don't even see that a room is available. And inside the room, there are two, there are really three, but for our purposes, there are two levels. There's a stage. Anybody on the stage can talk at any time that they want. People in the audience cannot talk. In general, people in the audience can click the button in the lower right-hand corner and ask to come on the stage. And the moderators have discretion over whether or not to bring them up. So that's the dynamic. What happened yesterday is that Michael Tracy, the journalist, started a room in when the title was approximately um, is Clubhouse too obsessed with wokeism or something like that. Um, in any case, uh, I went into this room quite late, I think. The discussion was well underway. Michael Tracy was, I believe, um, having difficulty moderating the room. Uh, a person uh, came onto the stage to speak and challenged the fact that there were, by her accounting, no people of color uh, with moderator privileges. Michael Tracy made her a moderator. Uh, I did not see that interaction, but that's what I've been told. And then a coup took place, and everybody in the room acknowledged by the end of this discussion that it was a coup. So the person who had been given moderator privileges first kicked uh, Michael Tracy out of the off the stage, then kicked all white people off the stage, and the conversation radically shifted. Um, and it, you know, so it was a takeover. Now, at one level, who cares about some takeover in some ephemeral room on Clubhouse? On the other hand, the nature of Clubhouse is a discussion. And what took place in that room was stunning, not just to me, but to many people, including Peter Bogosian, who was in the audience, and Benjamin Boyce. Now, I would just point out that uh, Peter Bogosian, Benjamin Boyce, and myself are uh, three very well-versed people when it comes to discussions of wokeness, racial interactions, right? it would be hard to impress us. And yet all three of us were impressed with what took place in this room. It was shocking. And I impressed in a negative way. Tremendously negative. Mm -hmm. And my suspicion is that most people have not heard a conversation like this one. And so in any case, the, um, the nature of the, I, I think probably Peter and Benjamin and I are going to have to discuss what took place there in order that people can get any real deep sense of what it was. But what was uh, just fascinating was the fact that although in general there is a wide diversity of opinions in any clubhouse conversation above a few people, um, the diversity of opinion dropped to zero. Mm -hmm. And what happened was um, increasingly outlandish things were asserted on the stage with no objection from anybody, which spoke to what I'm going to claim as a kind of power. And one of the obvious results of this will be that anyone who is on Clubhouse and paying attention to it uh, and who knows what you just described, a moderator who is chastised 
who is asked to add someone else based on a demographic may well not do so in the future. And so legitimate inquiries about increasing diversity that might be legitimate, although we can put aside for the moment whether or not um, seeking diversity across demographic features is going to maximize conversation quality, but um, that this is likely to cause exactly the opposite thing. This is going to, I mean, quite literally silo people um, more because uh, future conversations um, by moderators uh, who have created a group around them of people who, you know, because it's who they know, look somewhat like them in some regard. Um, if a woman says you need more women, on, you need a woman on the stage, or a black person says you need a black person on the stage, uh, those moderators now have legitimate reason to be concerned that what is happening is not good faith, but is actually a coup attempt. So perfect. You've just described the birth of a Kafka trap. Right. You're now damned if you do and damned if you don't. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, of course, is a very dangerous dynamic, right? Right. Um, one certainly wants, and in fact, in general, people have been uh, pretty generous with uh, moderator privileges. And in general, the rooms are pretty well served by having a fair number of people from different perspectives have those privileges. But obviously, if anybody can kick anyone off the stage and, you know, I mean. So the idea is that any moderator has as complete a set of privileges as any other moderator, regardless of whether or not you set up the room or just, you know, just added. Exactly. Um, and so this then goes to. Eminently gameable. So gameable. Mm -hmm. And um, so I wanted to think, I wanted to think out loud a little bit on the question of what is power? Because what I saw yesterday take place over, I mean, I was in the room for, I don't know, three plus hours. Um, what I saw took place was a clear demonstration of power. And in fact, the very first thing that took place in the immediate aftermath of this coup, I, I think I shortchanged the story just a little bit, was that a bunch of people on the stage, and it's very hard to tell when many people are trying to speak at once who is speaking. Mm -hmm. um, it is relatively easy to tell when one person is speaking at a time, and rooms differ as to whether or not people talk over each other or wait their turn. But in this case, many people appeared to raise their voice um, and uh, try to prevent this um, ushering of people off the stage. They wanted a, a, a room in which there was room to disagree. All of those people were eliminated. So what you had mm -hmm. was inside of, I don't know, maybe it was 30 seconds, you had a stage that was diverse become at least uh, at a racial level become segregated. So segregation happened in this room almost instantly. And well, but, and, you know, frankly, more importantly, at an ideological level. Exactly. That's mm -hmm. the thing is not only was it racially segregated, but it was limited to those people who were apparently, and this became apparent over, you know, the course of hours, were apparently willing to sign on to anything offered by anyone in the room, including completely preposterous yeah. ideas. I mean, if John McWhorter or Coleman Hughes or Thomas Chatterton Williams or Chloe Valdery or, you know, any number of other uh, you know, smart black people had shown up and said, I'd like to come up on the stage, I don't think they would have been welcome. By, 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 by your account of what it sounds like was happening. There. Right. In yeah. fact, uh, John McWhorter was misportrayed on the stage. He was portrayed as a conservative, not surprising, yeah. but uh, he was portrayed that way. I was brought up, somebody noticed me in the audience, I was brought up um, basically to be cross-examined. You mean brought up to the stage or yes. mentioned? Okay. I was brought up to the stage, and I was asked if I was a white supremacist. I was oh, asked. This again. 
<laughs> oh, well, this... it's, it's almost the four-year anniversary. Why not play this game again? Well, but this is this is exactly it. And so, mm-hmm. uh, whatever else we can say about this environment, at one level, this was a lot like the ability of somebody. Imagine a virtual, I'm not a fan of virtual reality. I'm very frightened about what it's going to do to people's cognition over time. But imagine virtual reality that would allow you to teleport into the evergreen riots with no physical uh, safety issue, but the ability to be first person in that situation. How much would that do for people's understanding of whether this was or wasn't an important event, whether it was or wasn't being misrepresented, right? That ability to just be present Mm -hmm. is very persuasive. And so I I have the sense, frankly, that people generally, people on both the woke and the anti-woke side would have their viewpoint altered by, you know, the ability to participate in this conversation, even just to sit in the audience and hear it taking place in front of them, would I think convince a great many people that something important was going on. And many people I expect, even on the woke side, would have the sense of actually... I don't want any part of that, right? Because all of those claims are, I don't want to say all, although frankly, virtually every claim that was made was uh, extraordinary. Okay, so what's to be done then? Um, you know, so it, this thing was ephemeral uh, and um, you saw it firsthand. It's hardly the first time you've seen this firsthand and so did Benjamin Boyce. It's not his first time at the no. rodeo either. Nope. Um, Peter Bogosian, same thing, same you know. Thing. Um, and I presume I know less about Michael Tracy, but I, I, I believe that he knows uh, enough about this to have you know, recognized at least in retrospect what was happening. Um, so, you know, you were not further informed um there you you think there would be value in people um in other people who did not choose to be there in hearing or reading um this this thing that was ephemeral what what then you know what does it mean or what value can be derived from it all right so uh for one thing um let's just say peter was actually tweeting about this this morning about this conversation and his point was the constant refrain in this discussion or at least the recurrent refrain was that it all must be burned down that this is effectively that civilization all oh civilization must be burned civilization is effectively white and that whiteness taints it beyond repair and it must be burned down now my point is for the vast majority of people who have had it, right, who have had it and may be marching with BLM, the discovery mm-hmm. that there is at least a, a contingent wielding substantial power whose viewpoint is actually our purpose is to burn this down and yeah. then things will be better because they can't be worse, right? That discovery, the discovery that a great many people who call themselves abolitionists, whether they are talking mm. about prisons or the police or generally both, Mm-hmm. Right, that abolitionists have taken that honorable term and basically turned it on its head, and are think it's clever to uninvent civilization, and that imagine that somehow that will improve things. That that would be a wake up call that would actually allow us. It would be the gateway to the actual conversation that we need to be having. And so, this brings me back to the question of power. So, loosely speaking, I would say. Power is the ability to reallocate or redirect limited resources, right? Whether that is people's time, whether it is their attention, whether it is money, right? Whether it is uh, access to uh, a coveted spot in a school, in a 
uh, an organization, whatever it is. The ability to reallocate a limited resource is power. Now, my point is power, tremendous power, is being wielded by a movement that is composed of people who actually have positions that cannot be reconciled with each other. The burn-it-all-down people mm -hmm. are a substantial contingent, but there are lots of people who would not burn it down and know better than to burn it down who are wielding power together with them. And my mm -hmm. point is those two need to see each other, right? And those of us on the outside need to understand actually that the movement is these two unreconcilable things. And that means that we potentially have partners inside that movement who we can reach if they will stop signing on to this reflexive reaction. Well, I mean, I, th I think this is consistent with um, what we've been talking about since the protests began last um, May and June and what Jeremy Lee Quinn in your two conversations um, with him that are on this channel um, talked about as well, that, that he learned by going to many of the protests and I think some of the riots and then also to the the protests that turned into a riot um, at the Capitol on January sixth by you know a, a totally different group of people um, that really with regard to the people on the so called left um, it's not one one thing it's not one organization and early, you know we in fact we we see we saw some people who um, identified themselves as um, part of Black Lives Matter saying what the hell is going on with the anarchists and Antifa. And, you know, the anarchists, some of them will say, oh, we're not Antifa and vice versa and Black Lives Matter not. And like, what is trans Black Lives Matter doing in with the rest of this? And, you know, what? where did Wall of Moms come from? And, you know, there's so many different moving parts. I think it's actually... Um, it's a it's a good way in perhaps to say it's not one thing it's two but it's not two oh. it's it's many 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 and um, many of the people who are just kind of fence sitters which is a majority of the of the silent people right now who are you know think they're good liberals and therefore have to agree to this stuff um, aren't sure what all they believe and also the Martin Bailey is being played all the time and so they'll hear something about all white people are racist and go really. Okay, I didn't know that. It's like, well, you know, probably not you. Or, you know, whatever it is that happens then later on um, that allows them to say, well, that I know that thing sounds harsh, but I also know I'm on board with this movement because this is the, you know, this is about civil rights. This is the next civil rights, you know, thing that has to happen. The only way forward is to, you know, abolish the police or, you know, abandon all of history. Uh, what, you know, whatever, whatever garbagey conclusion is, has come in on the legitimate grievances, um, they're being wrapped up all nice and tidy in some pretty paper and some nice bows. And I think what you're saying basically is, you know, this was a view behind the curtain. Um, this was this was a view of what the conversation can actually sound like um, at times with you know with people who were doing so in in a kind of public space. It's not exactly public because this is invitation only, and they booted a lot of the people who they didn't want. Yes, and in fact, the night prior to this event, I was in a room with some of the same people who were playing a very different role. And the ostensible purpose of the room the night before was to build bridges. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, uh, it was, I don't think, especially successful. But nonetheless, the even just the ability to detect that the same people are playing a very different role and revealing a very different side of themselves in different circumstances... Yeah is you know compelling i mean you know let's think about you know naima and the difference between the way naima came across before evergreen started to melt down in faculty meetings 
long-winded, but, you know, she behaved like a colleague. And then there was a point at which it was like, oh, okay, we're the enemy, I guess. Well, I do think that um, somehow in modernity, many people assume that it is not just allowed but expected to have multiple personas. And that, you know, you'll, you know, certain, you know, we're supposed to dress differently when we go to work and we, you know, have a slightly different personality and you're supposed to make sure that whatever, you know, if you're, if you're young, you know, your social media posts from, you know, your party life don't, don't bleed over into your professional life, right? So it's sort of, it's, it's like I say, not just, ex not just okay, but sort of expected that you're going to have these different modes of being. And um, this, this was always actually really from the beginning of us being professors at evergreen uh one of the things that struck me as hypocritical among our colleagues and it was hardly limited to the faculty at evergreen um was the was the complete change of personality and attitude towards students in particular that happened as soon as they weren't on stage uh, as soon as the door closes and now it's just faculty you know the mask is off and it was <clears throat> it was reprehensible. It, that's it was actually deplorable. And uh, I think that this you know faculty are are really encouraged to do this to to actually have disdain for students. And you know that's not what we're talking about here. This isn't a faculty student relationship. But I but I think that this thing is true more widely. And everyone, regardless of whether or not they've been a teacher or a college faculty, everyone's been a student pretty much, except for those perhaps very uh, few lucky of those who are who have been unschooled. Um, and everyone has had a bad teacher. I think. You know, we, hopefully we've all had good teachers too, um, but I think everyone's had a bad teacher. And many times what bad teacher is, is actually obscuring the fact that the teacher has no respect for you as a human being, sees you as a butt in a seat that has to, you know, has to tick some boxes so that they can give a grade or whatever at the end and then be done with you. And many of us can detect that. Like we can detect it even if we're not the ones who are earning their disdain. We can see the disdain directed at other people or at ourselves or whatever. And... Boy, if people knew what at least many college faculty actually say when the doors are closed, I, I can't imagine wanting to send my children into a situation where such people had an ability to form an opinion at all. And so, you know, this the fact that you had people one night sounding one way and the next day sounding a totally different way and really a, a kind of an, an inhuman or at least a dehumanizing way, whether or not they were behaving in an inhuman way, they were attempting to dehumanize others. This is appalling and I think is sort of one of the horsemen of the existential apocalypse that is happening, but I'm not surprised. Yeah, I, I'm obviously not surprised either because it's not the first time I've seen it. Yeah. Um, the you know, the point you make about professors is so deep, right? And I don't, I don't understand how they even end up there, right? I don't know how you stand up in, in front of people whom you actively disdain. I, I don't know how you do it. Right. It seems like if that's your feeling about it, then why are you there? Yeah. Get I mean, different work. Yeah. Get Absolutely. different work. Yeah. Um, but uh, nonetheless, it, it is a common feature. Now, I think it's interesting as long as we're here, you and I dealt with this boundary a little differently as professors, right? From each other or? Yeah, yeah from mm -hmm. each other, perfectly mm -hmm. consistently. And I would say there was uh, zero 
lack of authenticity about you as a professor, but there was a slight layer of increased formality, mm-hmm. right? You didn't, you were not, you did not completely let your hair down in the role of professor, except with students that you knew very, very well. And, and sometimes in the field. Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. Now for me, I don't. Especially, on, you know, the farther away, the longer you're, you know, as I, as I would say to them in fact, look, we're going to be together for, you know, six, eight, 11 weeks. Like we're going to be just our human selves with one another completely. Right. And in, yeah. in, in some ways the field forces that whether you like it or not. Right. It just, the, well, I don't know, actually, because the vast majority of study abroad programs are crap and the faculty don't engage with the students and they're not actually spending time with them. And they're like meeting them for two hours a day, even at a field station, being like, OK, now we have this assignment and now I'm going to go back and do my faculty thing and you do your student thing. So, yeah, it doesn't force it if you're not if you're if you're trying not to teach, which most people seem to be doing. Yeah, I yeah. take it back. The yeah. field, the way we did the field yeah. forces it. But um, but the field is not inherently force it. You can go yeah. back to your cabin and, and behave and think differently and just only interact with the students a very limited amount. Yeah. But anyway, in front of the class, uh, I felt like, and I think this is just an idiosyncrasy of mine, right? I think probably the way you did things where you kept a level of formality, right? But it was not inauthentic. It was... So are you confusing formality with preparation? No. <laughs> No, not at all. Okay. Not at all. <laughs> you know, that um, was a little bit of a dig, but I think you can understand what I what I mean by that. <laughs> no, I mean, look, it, yeah. um, that that was there too. Dif- different question. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. But, you know, just the fact that, um, you know, I probably shouldn't admit this, but I, you know, I think oh. I cursed in front of the class at the same level I do at home, right? It just wasn't distinct. Okay. Um, but um, at home, I curse more than you do. And in class, I cursed less than you do, but I still cursed. So it just probably felt like it, it wasn't a legitimate thing to be doing at that level. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm yeah. not sure what it means. But I yeah. sort of, you know, look, I think the thing is I was overcoming an obstacle that was unique to me, one that you don't face, which is that because I was such a uh, you know, lousy student is one way to say it, um, because I was such a bad match for school. Um, That's that that is true. And frankly, more power to you. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, in order to do the job of being in the role of professor, I had to do it in a way that was not inconsistent with, I didn't want to be one of those, you know, do as I say, not as I do, you know, parents effectively. So in the role of professor, I wanted to be who I was. And then the point is, okay, this is a different kind of, and you know, I will say in my defense, every time I taught a new class, Every time I invested very heavily in telling people exactly what they were getting into. I was merciless about my flaws and how they would impact people. And so the point was, look, you're signing. I'm not saying it's not worth it, but mm-hmm. you're signing up for that, right? Yeah. And Most people didn't believe you, though, because, I mean, even that. It's a conversation for another time. <laughs> uh oh. Okay. No, no. It just I don't. We're we're far afield. Yes, we are far afield. All right. So um, maybe we should uh, maybe we should cap this off here and just say there is something about this environment that is allowing things to be seen in this context that are difficult for mm. people to see otherwise, and that the ability to tune into it. Uh, might be worth paying more attention to than just the fact of some new social media platform uh, showing up on the landscape. Granted. All right. Excuse me. Um, All right. Where should we go next? Um, There's a new paper um, called 
Let's do this next. Coronavirus disease 2019 hospitalizations attributable to cardiometabolic conditions in the United States, colon, a comparative risk assessment analysis. That is a mouthful, but that is the title of the new paper, uh, O'Hearn et al. 2021. Um, and before, um, I'm just going to read a tiny bit from it before we talk about it. But I will say that unlike, um, I, I have... I've ended up dissecting a number of papers on this podcast, and that is um, what I like to do, and not, not hopefully not to find tragic flaws, although a lot of the papers we've talked about here have been tragically flawed. Um, but in order that um, we don't just take the author's word for what it is that they've found. Um, and so you have to spend actual real time with the methods and results, and still you don't have the actual data, so you can't actually redo the analysis. But you have to in some cases, like some some one of the review papers um, that was finding asymptomatic transmission, and I thought I I revealed I think um, that this was a total crap paper and a total crap conclusion. You could actually discern where it was that they had generated those data. Um, in this this paper, though, um, is um, really complicated, and um, and there's a lot of layers that make it more difficult to assess it independently. So we are basically going to stay at the level of um, if the, if the author's assessment of what they found is true, this is what it means. Deductive logic working forward from the conclusions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Rather than the dissection and sometimes vivisection of papers that I, I have... Uh seen you do and yeah. participated in here on the podcast. Which I have to say, uh, as much as I wish that no papers were worthy of vivisection, I do find it um, a somewhat enjoyable task. <laughs> I do. Well, you do it well. Thank you. Um, so um, and I'm not, uh, I will have you share my screen, but not yet, Zach. So just in the introduction, uh, they say, uh, in the most recent Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Analysis of available national data among individuals diagnosed with COVID-19, a 35-year-old with diabetes mellitus, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, obesity, or other chronic conditions had a similar risk of COVID-19-related hospitalization, I was a 35-year-old with one of the comorbidities, as a 75-year-old with none of these conditions, and a similar risk of COVID-19-related death as a 65-year-old with none of these conditions, a dramatic biologic aging effect of poor metabolic health on risk of severity of a viral infection such as COVID-19. So that is a pre-existing um, piece of research from the CDC that this paper is um, citing. And then I want to, oh, why does my, as soon as we plug the computer into this system for live streams, everything goes awry. Okay, um, here is, um, this is just the paper. It's in the Journal of the American Heart Association. O'Hearn et al. just published, and I'm just going to read their set-aside box here, clinical perspective. What is new? Meaning, what is new in this paper? Patients with cardiometabolic conditions, in particular obesity, hypertension, diabetes mellitus, and heart failure, have a high risk of poor outcomes from coronavirus disease 2019 infection. That's actually not new. We already knew that. Those are some of the major comorbidities for COVID-19 for bad outcomes uh, and for actually getting the disease at all. Among, among more than 900,000 U.S. coronavirus disease 2019 hospitalizations, through November 18, 2020, nearly two-thirds, 63.5%, were estimated to be attributable to these cardiometabolic conditions, that is, preventable if these conditions had not been present. 
top risks were obesity, uh, which is explaining 30% of that um, nearly two-thirds, hypertension at 26%, diabetes mellitus at 21%, um, and then heart disease was, I think, about 12 or so. Um, and then what are the clinical implications? Clinicians should educate their patients who may be at risk and consider promoting preventative lifestyle measures, such as improved dietary quality and physical activity to improve overall cardiometabolic health and potentially minimize the risk for coronavirus disease 2019 severity. At some level, again, assuming that they have done this, you know, sort of like massive data review and analysis accurately, which includes lots of places where there are models, so you know, lots of places for it not to have been done brilliantly. Um, at some level, I feel like finally, finally, someone is doing this kind of work and talking directly about um, about actually what makes you as an individual more likely to have a bad outcome among those factors that you actually potentially have control over. You know, there has been a lot of talk about age and it's true, right? The older you are, the more at risk you are of getting and of, of having a poor outcome from the disease, but you can't do anything about that. We don't, we don't have the solution to that yet. Sex, uh, men are more likely to both get slightly and have bad outcomes more so. Um, COVID-19 than women, and then race. And actually, um, to some degree, uh, Black people, but really um, Latina, what, what, are, what is often described as Hispanic people, um, have um, much worse outcomes compared to their, um, you know, many more Hispanics are affected than you would expect from background rates of Hispanics in the population. So those are those are all true things about which you can't do anything, right? You can't just Frankly, you can't just declare yourself a different age or a different sex or a different race, right? But these comorbidities, you potentially can. Not all of them, and not if you're really, you know, really <clears throat> far gone. But if you start to eat better and be more active in your life, you can reduce um, your obesity and your hypertension and potentially deal with your diabetes mellitus. All of these are at least affected by, and in some cases, majorly affected by lifestyle choices. So I, of course, fully agree with that. And there is an obvious discussion to be had about the absurdities of this moment and the idea that to discuss such things is to pretend that a particular body form is more healthy when, in fact, of course, a yes. particular body form is more healthy. Now I'm fat um, shaming. Right. You, you could yeah. be dismissed as fat shaming. And mm -hmm. to the extent that the data seem to reflect that this is not fat shaming, this is just analysis, then we can also complain that data, the very idea of data, logic, science is white supremacist, whatever it is. And so obviously- the right analysis is no, none of that is true, mm -hmm. right? And it's not to say science hasn't been put to bad ends or bent to particular populations' uh, desires or needs or whatever. Of course it has. But the point is those tools are actually indifferent to who you are if you use them right. Mm -hmm. And the, the thing that I want to point out is that there's a whole set of analyses that one wants. In effect, there are going to be dozens of factors involved in how likely you are to contract COVID-19 and what happens to you after you do, mm -hmm. right? Type O blood appears to be involved. It seems to be somewhat protective as compared to type A. So we talked about that in like our first or second live stream, and I haven't seen anything about that for many months now. Have you seen anything? Yes, I did just see something recent, okay. but I don't have it. Uh, maybe, okay. maybe But that we'll seems to be it. holding. It seems to be holding. Okay. Um, but here's, here's the point. 
type O blood is not going to be independent of all these other factors. So does the fact that uh, black people and Hispanic people are facing more COVID, does that hold if we control for vitamin D? Probably, because the comparison between blacks and Hispanics likely involves blacks making less vitamin D as a result of just being on average darker. Or if we control for obesity and hypertension rates. Right. And so that's what you really want to do is figure out how many of these things are correlated indirectly through something else, right? Through, Through... cultural factors, right? How many people live in a household can have effects. Um, uh, You know, it could be genetic factors, but indirect like melanin production and its interface with vitamin D production. One of the things we talked about earlier, a paper you brought to the discussion was um, the the local subway lines that people were forced to take more, people were more likely to be forced to take to get to work if they lived in low income areas in New York City. This was a New York City based subway analysis. Right, which was a beautiful case of something that had nothing to to do inherently with biology, but was having impacts on biology mm-hmm. by virtue of the way the city is constructed. Right. Um, the, the, the neighborhoods in the city were effectively segregated by ethnicity, and so people of certain ethnicities were at more risk of getting the thing because they happened to live in places and were taking these subway lines where they were stuck in these tiny cars with lots of people getting on and off all the time for longer. Yep. Yep. So um, anyway, one wants the analysis of variants that picks apart all of the factors, figures out which ones are actually directly correlated and which yeah. ones evaporate when you control for their connection to other things. Um, and then you would be maximally armed. And so in some sense, we all carry around this, you know, this stuff from the beginning, which is very probably true. In fact, it's hard to imagine how it's false that age is this dominant factor. But the point is, okay, if in effect obesity causes you to behave like somebody who's much older, right, with respect Mm. to contracting COVID-19, then the point is, well, you don't have control over the age, but you might have control over the obesity, right? Mm -hmm. And so thinking in these terms, like, okay, we all probably have a few tick marks against us with respect to COVID-19. And then we have some other places where, you know, we may have uh, the opportunity to do something. And the question is, well, how low can you get your risk? And, you know, if you can't get your risk metabolically low, maybe you need to c- correct for it behaviorally, right? Mm-hmm. So the point is armed with information, you are in the best position to manage this, which also means stopping the focus on death, which is, yes. of course, you know, death is very important. But mm-hmm. from the point of view yes. of, of actually... You may get over this thing, but it may rob you of a decade of life by virtue of what it's done to your lungs or your circulatory tissue. That's a very important factor. And um, anyway, the only right answer here is for us to figure out how to do these analyses so they're not polluted, so that our information and therefore our models, both formal and informal, get better over time, which then arms us maximally to protect ourselves and to, you know, to to uh to choose our future you know collectively like at what point do we um you know say well this is under control enough that we have to prioritize the world moving forward right that's a discussion we can only have if we have really good information on where we are and what our actual risks are yes no that's right and um you know unfortunately all of the new variants are making that conversation even harder to have um because oh you know we we might have expected, and in fact, I think we predicted early on um, that um, this was, you know, th- this this is likely to become less virulent over time. It's effectively 
I, and I and I have seen a number of other scientists propose that this is likely to become just a circulating background disease that effectively children get exposed to um, and thus have some immunity to going forward. Um, I don't know, and I've seen no one attempt an analysis of what these <clears throat> different variants um, that are wildly different in terms of both transmissibility and death rate might do to that analysis. Right. Or, like, or even like how we proceed with analysis in the light of those, really. And, you know, I mean, we've got two novel factors here. One, the ultimate wild card. If this isn't a natural virus, if this is a modified virus, then it will not abide by our expectations uh, evolutionarily that are based on what wild viruses do when they jump. Right. Um, now, it's also quite possible that it would be novel in its own right. Having jumped from nature with no human tinkering, maybe this is just going to follow a different pattern and we're going to learn something about viruses we didn't know. Mm -hmm. But if it's uh, modified, if it is enhanced, then one expects a very um, different pattern to emerge yes. from this. The other thing is that these vaccines are, it is increasingly clear to me that these vaccines are novel, not only with respect to the frightening interaction that they have with systems where we can't predict what the long-term impact is going to be because we haven't seen it yet. And You're because- You're talking specifically about the mRNA vaccines or also about the DNA vaccines. So just to, so and we've talked a lot about vaccines on the show before, but we've got uh, Pfizer and Moderna, uh, Pfizer, and, Pfizer and BioNTech and Moderna vaccines, those two, uh, which are widespread in the US at this point, which are both mRNA vaccines. And you've got the AstraZeneca slash Oxford vaccine, which it looks like is not gonna be available in the US, but is available a few other places. And Johnson & Johnson, which may be about to get FDA approval in the US. Both of those, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, are DNA vaccines, also not traditional, but they use a delivery mechanism of an adenovirus um, rather than these lipid nanoparticles. Yep, and I see in you know various comments that we get uh, in various places, we're having trouble conveying uh, the evolutionary uh, approach here. So to the extent that the AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson vaccines are not um, a tried and true technology, they're somewhat more tried and true than the lipid nanoparticles that are used for the mRNA vaccines. One part of them is tried and true, right? One part of them is more traditional vaccine-wise, but mm -hmm. what it also is, is something that we have evolutionary experience with that has nothing to do with vaccines. That is to say, experience with adenoviruses, right? So that experience with adenoviruses that our ancestors and probably each of us has yes. had actually makes this safer as well. Um, but in any case, the so when I'm talking about the novel factor of the vaccines, I'm actually talking about, so we've really got two categories. We've got mm -hmm. the mRNA vaccines and their lipid nanoparticles and the adenovirus vaccines DNA vaccines and their adenoviruses, just to be very careful right. about mRNA yes. with lipid nanoparticles, DNA with adenoviruses. Right. So the adenovirus vaccines are carrying their information in the form of DNA, which then gets translated into RNA, which then creates spike protein, which then alerts the immune system exactly as the uh, mRNA vaccines do. Yeah. But there is another unique factor here, which has nothing to do with the delivery mechanism at all. In which? in both, in okay. all four of these yep. uh, vaccines, the two different categories for vaccines. And that is that we are very narrowly targeting the spike protein. And by very narrowly targeting the spike protein, we are creating a, uh, 
an evolutionary, a concentrated evolutionary force, whereas cruder, more primitive vaccine technologies that, you know, take a, a, a whole virus and either break it up or uh, neutralize its pathogenic effect, those things are much more general. And so the compare so be, be more precise about that but when you say they're much more general you're basically you're giving your body an attenuated or you know pieces of the original virus and your body can then develop an ability to recognize lots of different parts of that whereas the four vaccines that we named the two mrna and the two dna vaccines only provide the body with an ability to recognize the spike protein, which means that if the spike protein is to change, just to, to list one possible problem with this, if the spike protein is to evolve, then um, all of the all of these four vaccines um, are rendered useless. Not useless, yeah. uh, less useful. Less useful. But it does two things. I mean, this is the thing we're in. If this weren't so politicized, this would be incredibly fascinating. So yeah. politicized and so dangerous. This would be fascinating because what we're doing is experimenting with a much more targeted vaccine, right? Narrowly targeted. That narrowly targeted vaccine increases the likelihood of our vaccines becoming more useless over time because we're creating a very uh, precise attack that the virus will be favored to resist. Yeah. However, it also creates the possibility of effectively swapping out the information in these vaccines without going through the rest of it. Which is part of why, at least, I mean, I, I know much less about the DNA vaccine development, but the mRNA vaccine development um, has the potential to be so fast. And indeed, apparently one of them, I don't remember which, was actually created in a weekend back in like February or March of last year. And, you know, if they turn out to be as safe and effective as the whole world is hoping that they are, um, then this really does mean that future pandemics could be halted pretty quickly with, you know, widespread inoculation by uh, new, you know, rapidly developed mRNA vaccines. Potentially. Now, what you really want to know is how much of the variance in the risk that comes with these things is due to the delivery mechanism and how much is due to the uh, the informational content, whether it's in mRNA or DNA. Yeah. Because if the danger is in the informational content, then you can't uh, make the safety process rap more rapid, mm -hmm. right? You have to go through it. Right. On the other hand, right. if the danger is really in the delivery mechanism, then A, maybe we can refine that right? We can reduce the danger and still get the delivery. And then B, swap out the information. And you could even imagine a future not so far down the road where you might not have to have centralized creation of these things. You could have, you know, effectively like printing newspapers in each town, right? You could have a factory. 3D printing for vaccines. The equivalent, mm -hmm. right? You could have that sort of thing taking place so that as the thing, as we got really good at tracking uh, pathogens and epidemics, we would also get really good at delivering, you know, you, it could be targeted in the sense that your vaccine could be built for the particular strains that are circulating in your right. municipality. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, there's lots of possibilities here. Um, but boy, what a dangerous experiment we're discovering this stuff in. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, anything else there? No. All right. Um, we move on to sexism and science. I thought we were going to go to the um, the vaccination of 
children? Uh, I don't. I didn't follow through on that. So I I have some links, but I don't. I didn't spend any time with the research. Um, so can you put up the the paper? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I don't think you have it, Zach. Um, <clears throat> I have I, I, this. This isn't an original paper. This is right, just this a, is a report. Yeah, this is a science news article published this week. So, in science, vaccine trials ramp up in children and adolescents. And let's see. There's um. There's a quote here, if memory serves. Here we go. Um, Adult deaths from COVID-19 dwarf those in children. In the United States, for example, young people make up about 250 of 500,000 total deaths. But for children, COVID-19 is still, quote, causing more deaths than influenza does in a typical season, says Douglas Dykema, a pediatrician and bioethicist at Seattle Children's Hospital. Quote, those are unnecessary deaths and should be prevented. So I I found this uh, report a bit upsetting. Um, not only mm-hmm. so first of all to say it still causes more deaths than influenza in a given year a turns out to be questionable so i've got that link yeah, yeah you want to show that um so again i just i did not spend any time here so i just i went and looked at um the cdc on influenza and um this is oh boy uh so in the 2019-2020 influenza season there were 188 reported pediatric flu deaths. Um, And that was a fairly high year, apparently. But you scroll down and you find that, um, again, you like, I I was not ready for this. Um, Oh, here we go. While any death in a child from a vaccine-preventable illness is a tragedy, the number of pediatric flu deaths reported to CDC each season is likely an undercount. For example, even though the reported number of deaths during the 2017-18 flu season was 188, CDC estimates, and that turns out to be the same number, I think, this year, CDC estimates the actual number was closer to 600. It is likely the actual number of children who died from flu during the 2019-2020 season is higher as well. And I would say, and this is you know based on no data, but that given the ways that COVID deaths have been counted, um, that... I think if there is an error in attributing deaths to COVID in children, it's the other way. It's an overcount. And the CDC is telling us that they think that deaths attributable to flu in children is reliably an undercount. And if those two, even if those things aren't true, those two numbers of deaths so far from COVID and deaths this last year from uh, flu in children are so close that you would at least need to do a statistical analysis. And um, you know this this claim from this pediatrician and bioethicist um, that it's it's higher higher deaths in COVID in children from COVID than from flu is suspect at best. And the idea that we are making policy based on this policy, which involves vaccinating children, is scary. Yeah, not only making policy, um, but doing so in um, in a way that has hidden hazards that aren't discussed here. So actually, Zach, would you put up the graph that I sent you? So this is also um, CDC in origin. This is 2019, 2018, 2019. And you can see there that the number of flu deaths in zero to four is at two. Is oh. Can you read it? Yeah, it's 256. But then five to 17 is 211. So I don't know, you know, I don't know what the children demarcation is for COVID, but um, certainly it's over four. 
Right. Um, now that So that's that's a bigger number than we were seeing. Right. Now go yeah. back to the uh the report. The science news article? Yeah, the science mm -hmm. news article. Okay. Now unfortunately Do you want Zach to show this? Yeah, you can uh -huh. show it and scroll up. Unfortunately, I can't see it there, but I believe that the uh numbers here So I saw was it here? Well, this is embarrassing. But they had a deaths um, in the zero to twenty range, and by saying zero to Wait, zero to twenty years old, years old exactly. Mm -hmm. um, I can't find it there, but it creates a bias because effectively what we've got is evidence that very young children are pretty well protected and that the numbers are very low. Mm -hmm. What they're not saying here, and what troubles me, is that okay. First of all, it's manipulative to say any, these deaths are preventable and any is too many, right? Yes. Coming out against the death yes. of children is, you know, not, uh, it, it is a position that everybody will uh, embrace and many will strongly do so on an emotional basis. No, but it, it, it at best pretends and at worst, no, it at best doesn't understand and at worst pretends that trade-offs don't exist. Right, exactly. And so there is reason to keep children away from these vaccines that comes from the fact that they, by virtue of their age, are very well protected from catching yep. and and, uh, and apparently transmitting and transmitting yep. and suffering bad outcomes, mm -hmm. right? And they've got the most of their lives to live to experience what we hope are no, but might be long-term side effects of these new vaccines. That's exactly it. Not only do they have more of their lives ahead of them in which bad outcomes could emerge. Imagine outcomes that are delayed 30 or 40 years, right? If right. you're 50 and you get a vaccine that has a delayed bad outcome, right? You may not live to experience it or it may not compromise much of your life, but if you're young, yep. of course, um, yep. it will. But, um, but the other thing is developmental, right? The question is, what is the age at which it is most reasonable to start vaccinating, right? Now, you and I, mm -hmm. in dealing with vaccinations for our children, and we did fully vaccinate them, but we had a rubric, which was to delay each of the vaccinations as long as possible mm -hmm. so that we would get the full protection of those vaccines. There was no point in vaccinating kids against things that they weren't going to encounter. Mm -hmm. So we vaccinated them at the point that an encounter with the pathogen was likely. And we delayed we delayed travel. You know, the reason, um, part of the reason that I was doing study abroad alone for many years when I was just driven to do it and I wanted you to be part of it and our children to be part of it. And, you know, you really pushed back against it and said there, you know, yes, lots of people live in these places, but, you know, we're, we're not going to put our children in the situation where we have to choose between exposing them to diseases and vaccinating them earlier than, um, than we think they should be vaccinated. And right. so we didn't take them, for instance, to, you know, the uh, Ecuadorian Amazon until we felt that they were old enough to get the full, you know, yellow fever and all the rest of the vaccinations that they really, we felt they needed to have in order to be safe there. Right. So- okay, we're going to vaccinate kids yeah. who are better protected, are more, are going to have, likely to have greater impacts, both because of the amount of time and because of the early stage in their development at which they're encountering these vaccines, which open up possibilities for bad outcomes that adults won't have. Mm -hmm. um, 
And at the same time, in that article, it describes the fact that because we have pretty good data from the uh, the safety trials that have already been done, these trials are being scaled back in terms of the number, right? So basically, this is being treated as pro forma, which is exactly the opposite of a responsible uh, approach to this. The yeah. responsible yeah. approach would say kids have less to gain and more to lose. Mm -hmm. We should be very sure about the safety. Mm -hmm. And then we should figure out what the age is rather than clumping people zero to 20, right? Which is crazy because, you know, kids 18, 19 do have some substantial risk. Mm -hmm. So anyway, the, the elephant in the room, of course, is the perverse incentive surrounding the profitability of vaccinating everybody. Mm -hmm. And so I increasingly think we, we have to worry about what role that is playing. Yeah. Uh, it does not make sense to me. Maybe somebody will explain to us why uh, why we don't get it. But it doesn't make sense to me that all of the people who definitely had COVID, and I understand there's a problem with people who may have had COVID, right. but people who definitely had COVID, they've had the equivalent of a vaccine. And it's not obvious that this couldn't uh, uh, compromise immunity in ways that we discussed last time. Mm -hmm. um, uh, or at the very least be needless and expose them to risks that we can't say much about because they could be very well delayed and we haven't seen the outcomes here. So uh, at the level of a desire to vaccinate everyone as if vaccination is inherently good and the more people we can get it to, the better, that does not uh, pay proper heed to the fact that the cost-benefit analysis is very different depending upon who you are. Mm -hmm. And that means yeah. we should be hedging out those risks for several different groups of people. Exactly. And those, yeah, the, the three populations that I've mentioned multiple times, are you, you've already mentioned two of them. It's children, it's people who've already had COVID, and it's pregnant women. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. All right, now can we talk about sexism? Yes. Awesome. All right. Okay, so um, this I just ran across this remarkably sexist obituary of a female Actually, chemist. The right response is you. Okay, just please, just don't. <laughs> no, go ahead. I just don't want you giving something away here because of the way I'm. I'm, I'm not. I was I was going to okay. give you permission to okay. talk about sexism. Oh, thank you, sir. <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. Wow. Okay, uh, so this really sexist obituary of a female chemist came to my attention this week. And um, before I read just a bit of it to share just, you know, how obnoxious it is, um, let me say a few things about what what her contributions were, because they don't show up in this obit at all. Um, she made contributions in electric arc lighting and sediment transport. She, run the, she won the Royal Society's illustrious Hadley Medal, and she held 26 patents. So this is, you know, this is no slouch in, in science land. Um, but this excerpt written by one um, Henriette E. Armstrong includes, uh, so this, this obituary includes the following two paragraphs. Mrs. Ayrton was one of those who aspired to prove that woman can be as man as an original scientific inquirer. Did she succeed? If we are to frame a psychology of the scientific mind regarding this as a species apart, we must carefully note and analyze the doings of such as she. I have but small qualification for the office, yet as she was my colleague's wife, and we often met and were in fair sympathy, I was able to take notice of her idiosyncrasies and of the conditions under which she was placed. <laughs> and another paragraph, uh, a few... <laughs> A few a few paragraphs later, my God. Um, speaking as he does, as this obituary writer does throughout the entire thing, really speaking of the husband, who was also a scientist, and she's just like the, the hanger on, um, says, 
so this is the obituary writer, and the him here is the husband, not the person the obituary is about. I often told him that he and his wife were an ill-assorted couple. Being both enthusiastic and having cognate interests, they constantly worried each other about the work they were doing. <laughs> he should have had a humdrum wife, an active, useful sort of person, such as Lady Catherine recommended Mr. Collins to marry, who would have put him into carpet slippers when he came home, fed him well, and led him not to worry either himself or other people, especially other people. Then he would have lived a longer and a happier life and done far more effective work, I believe. <laughs> My God, right? Like just, just incredible, right? So, so wait, um, the, pro the problem is that because she was scientifically productive, she could not properly tend to him, which made him less productive? That's yes, the, the obituary author believes that the man, who I don't even know if he's dead or not, like would have been an even more impressive scientist if he had simply had a, uh, a humdrum wife, an active, useful sort of person. Mm -hmm. Yes, so this in the obituary of the woman, right? Okay, so there's been a call to retract this sexist obituary, right? Here's an excerpt from the call to retract. And as I said, I didn't read the whole obituary, but it didn't include any of the, you know, and that's just a few of her remarkable achievements. The call to retract includes, its brazen sexism serves only as a monument to how long and hard women have had to fight for an equal place at the scientific table. And it's anti-Semitic. This meaning, this mean anti-eulogy is by someone who knew little of Ayrton or her work. The chemist Henry Armstrong airs doubts about whether women could be scientists and cast aspersions on Ayrton's originality and intelligence. By striking contrast, other obituaries, such as that in The Guardian, celebrate her remarkable scientific achievement. After a letter of complaint, Armstrong, with breathtaking arrogance, chided his critic for lacking a sense of humor and requested one correction to a typographical error. So... Um, these are these are some good points, right? This is a terrible, uh, a really terrible obituary, and it's you know it's sexist. It's awful. It frames the scientist's career entirely in terms of what her husband was and how if she had been less interesting, her husband could have been more so maybe. Um, but you know, in general, calls to retract are antithetical to science journals. On the other hand, an obituary isn't a science paper. Um, but there is one other salient point in this story that um, that I think is worth pointing out, which is that. The call to retraction was published last week in 2021, and the obituary was published in 1923, 98 years ago. <laughs> so <laughs> truly stunning, really, that we have a call to retraction for a 98-year-old obituary, which if if it happened, it disappears history. Like It's actually important to know that accomplished scientists from 98 years ago were being written about in this way. We need to know these things. Well, I'm actually for the retraction. Oh. If it would bring her back. I was unable to find any information on whether that would be the consequence. Yeah. But, if but, it, but wouldn't we need to bring her husband back too? He probably is dead by now. And given that you know she was best with him, she, we, we would need him back as well. All right. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that dimension. I, I admit it's a it's always a forgetting wrinkle. the husband. Yes, yeah. always forgetting the husband. Mm -hmm. But yeah. you know, look, my sense, exactly as your sense, is that it is absolutely essential that we not retract this, right? Hundred percent. Right. Yes. I mean, <laughs> precisely because it teaches exactly the right lesson. It's just so right? obvious. Well, right? like it <laughs> it's it's adorable, right? Yes. <laughs> Chemist Henry Armstrong proves how adorable he is. Right. How yes. well, but I mean how provincial and absurd and how, you know, how different a world we live in. I mean, you remember the uh the elders in the museum where we learned our craft, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. 
spoke of many things. One of them was a, a generation prior, the concern that women couldn't do field biology because where would they pee? Right. I don't actually remember. You don't this. remember this? No. Oh, that was that was a, a, a story that uh, you know Dick liked to tell, mm. right? And you know Dick Alexander. Dick yeah. Alexander, mm. uh, my PhD advisor, who mentored many many women. He didn't. Mm. He wasn't ever fooled by this kind of nonsense. Right. But the dude, idea dude was not sexist in any way. Right. Mm. So in any case, how important is it for you know modern women in science to be able to go back and say, oh well. On the one hand, 1923 is a while ago. And on the other hand, it's not that long. Right. And look how far we've moved, right? That is that is significant. And so it just goes to the whole instinct to tear down the monuments, right, to some era to pretend, right, that it didn't happen somehow. As it's, if it's not going to make the problem worse. worse. And like bring back sexism. And, you know, it, it, is, it is actually is akin. It's like ahistoricity, which also I think – uh, obscures a little bit of an innumeracy uh, in which that thing that happened in the past is now imagined to be what is happening right now. And, you know, the, the person who's um, advocating for the retraction doesn't pretend that this didn't happen 98 years ago, but she still says we should retract it. Um, and in fact, oh, I don't I don't have the whole thing right here, but um, it reminded me a little bit of, you know, again, to go full circle here, the claims when Evergreen was blowing up that what was happening on this college campus, this, you know, the most progressive college campus in the U.S. maybe, in which literally no founded claims of racism ever came to the fore, we were being compared to Alabama in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. Like literally that was the claim on stage by various people before the blow up and during the blow up. And like, you know, this... This, by is, Felix. this is insane. Yes, by staff at the college who were supposed to be bringing us together and creating an educational environment. And of course, he was doing exactly the opposite on both fronts. So, you know, I am I am grateful to the person who was called to retract this obituary because I got to go back and read this obituary and thought, wow, I didn't so I didn't know that a woman who died in 1923 would have you know, would have been doing all of that work, right? Like, you know, we all have sort of Marie Curie as like the example of a female scientist from early on. And actually, you know, like the Great Women of Mathematics account on Twitter um, is um, also celebrates some of the the older, um, the, the historic figures from mathematics. But um, to have had this person be so actually accomplished and then so denigrated in death is really useful to know. Like, I'm glad I know that, even though I find this modern letter to nature absurd and part, you know, indicative of exactly the problem that we've been talking about. There's a kind of defect of thinking mm -hmm. that I, I'm, I'm sure it isn't local to the left always, but I'm seeing it very, um, in a very concentrated form on especially the extreme uh, left, the woke left, which has to do with a sense of um, because we look back at history and we recognize certain things as clearly absurd and wrong, there is a desire, which I think is totally legitimate, to be on the right side of history. And I, I'm one of these people who disagrees. People are always complaining about those who say, be on the right side of history, or this is the right side of history, or whatever the claim is. The problem is you never actually know for sure. Right. Um, but the idea that that's where you're supposed to be Right, you're supposed to understand how history will judge 
you know, this or that. And mm -hmm. being on the right side of history is a laudable goal. But because of that, there is this uh, manipulable nature to people who mm. understand that to be the objective, where the point is you can paint this as that and then the person will jump because the point is, well, the last thing they want to be is discovered to be on the wrong side of history. And mm -hmm. so um, I see this unfolding uh, in and around the issue of trans, where I tweeted this week that um, you didn't actually need to uh, surrender the sexual binary, which we've pointed out so many times, goes back 500 million years in, in our lineage, um, nor do you need to- At least. At least. Mm -hmm. Nor do you need to invent any new pronouns or force people to say they, them. The fact is you can fully honor and protect trans people by just allowing them to choose whether they want he, he or she, right? And so in any case, the point is that the desire to portray these modifications of language as the right side of history, right? And then we can look back at, you know, uh, what happened with homosexuality, right? And so people then immediately jump to, I'll do whatever it is so that I'm not, you know, I'm not the villain in this case, causes them to embrace things which actually don't naturally follow, right? And my point about um, the pronouns, for example, would be that, look, I'm perfectly persuaded that there are trans people and that the right thing to do is uh, to honor whatever their choice of pronouns is among the two normal choices. It becomes, though, an exercise of power at the point that you say, ah, you're going to call me Zer, right? Yeah. <clears throat> uh, no, it, it does. And um, sorry, go on. Well, anyway, my, my only point is that um, the, the ability of people to be manipulated on the basis of a strong desire not to be caught out by history is tied up in the same thing where we're, uh, it, instead of leaving this absurd obituary as a monument or leaving, you know, the statue of uh, a great president who is compromised by his having held slaves, right? Leaving that to, you know, spark the proper curiosity of people in the future. How, how maybe, could- Maybe they're teaching moments. Right. right, like re remember how education was, you know. And when I first heard this phrase, I thought, "Oh my goodness, that's ridiculous." But you know, like you you use the surprising, the offensive, the unusual as a teaching moment. Now let's figure out what it means. Let's let's go forward from here. Right, and yeah. and you know the contradiction. Right, yeah. George Washington could have been king. Right, he refused it out of yeah. moral decency, yeah. and yet he held slaves. Mm -hmm. So the point is, all right, that sounds like a human story, and it sounds like one that one doesn't want to shortchange by turning it into a cartoon, and you know, by pretending, well, of course, he's so compromised by his flaws that we can no longer even pay attention to his accomplishments, you know, or his decency, that, um, you know, it builds a totally phony history. Yeah. So just to get back to pronouns for a moment, as, as, as you know, one of the essays that I'm sort of working on in the background has to do a lot with, with pronouns and what, it, what kind of a power play it is. But um, you know, the, thing, the thing that's absent from your just thumbnail analysis there is the moving target. And you know, it didn't, you know, we're no longer even just talking about trans. We're now talking about non-binary. And you know, non-binary has <laughs> no place in this discussion at all. It's just it's a total fabrication, right? And 
um, you know, you present how you want, but you know, the pronouns refer to your sex, and um, and if you you know really feel that you need to be referred to as the sex that you were not born to, then all of us who are interested in respecting you are going to do that. But um, the creation of new pronouns is a perfect match for the invocation of ninety three thousand genders, and you know, like, and all you know, all of this other ridiculousness um, that um, that just just departs entirely from reality. It's just not pretending anymore, really. Um, and it's it's it, some people, I'm sure, are actually enjoying watching the good-hearted trying to play ball and you know get on board the next civil rights thing. Um, liberals um, like us, but you know the the confused um, go like, oh, okay, I'll I'll I guess I'll call you that thing. I guess I'm not sure what that is for anyway. And like, can we can what why can we not agree universally on some of the things that until yesterday to use Douglas Murray's formulation everyone knew right okay you have caused me to formulate exactly what uh what i'm seeing that that's troubling me which is the recognition that there is something that must be done and the false connection with um, past examples causes people to trip over themselves to try to get out in front of the race to be, uh, mm -hmm. you know, to be yep. Yep. decent to some oppressed group. And the problem is that the desire, hey, whatever it is that needs to be done to uh, to honor trans people, I want to be in front of it, right? I want to be in the lead. That desire to be in the lead is what causes people to say, oh, I know what we can do. Right, mm -hmm. and it it allows bad actors to tack on these uh, yep. things that amount to power, yep. and um, that is where the whole thing falls apart. And so, you know, yeah, why why does the discussion about trans require us to pretend anything at all about the sexual binary? Right, it, it's trans. It actually is built from the sexual binary. Right, right? it depends on it depends know, if, on if, it. if trans is real, uh, then the sexual binary is real. Then the sexual binary is real. And mm -hmm. interestingly, my tweet garnered uh, at least three responses I know of from people who uh, are famously trans who were uh, who yep. agreed. Sure. Yep. All right. Good segue to octopus. Of course. Okay. This is this is just brief, um, but. Um, here we have a science news article, and I can link to the full article too, but it's pretty it's pretty dense. Um, no, actually, this is editor's choice. So each week, the editors at Science go and look at papers that are published elsewhere and uh, and talk about what they think um, the readers of Science might be interested in. Uh, and so this tiny little blurb. Uh, says, among other things, Katz et al., the authors of the original research published in the Journal of Experimental Biology, found that octopus arms display a phototactic response to light, automatically withdrawing when the arm, especially the tip, is illuminated. So this is akin to mammals, or if you're not familiar with other mammals, the human response when you reach towards a hot stove and retract it, that this is, you know, this this is actually a, a, a spinal cord reflex. So this isn't even going through the, the brain, I think, that right. reflex. Um, and, you know, obviously... Um, Cephalopods aren't vertebrates. We don't. They don't have a central nervous system that's evolved in the same way ours is. But um, this this phototaxis in the tips, without any 
um, w- without connection to the brain is incredible to me. Yeah, it's just, just incredible. It's fascinating. Um, now, I did go back to the original paper, and it said something that caught me totally off guard, which I couldn't track down the reasoning. But it basically assumed that um, that uh, that octopi have poor proprioception, which actually yes, it does, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't know why it would assume that, but nonetheless, this was yeah. The, no, it's it's a, it's built into the assumption. Yeah, I've got the paper here. I, I don't. It does assume that it's also, it, it, they also only started out with four octopi and then one died um, during the experiment. So they ended up with three. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a tiny sample size. Yeah. Um, as you would expect, like, as you would really hope for with, uh, you know, a lab lab experiment on such intelligent creatures that they're not using, you know, hundreds of animals. But Yeah. I don't know if you saw in the footnotes that two of them actually escaped and they caught up to him at a bar across town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, this is really interesting. And I think it um, actually it's weird. Eric and I were having a, a conversation about octopi uh, yesterday. Um, yes, you mentioned his insistence on a non-standard plural. Oh, yes, I did mention that, didn't I? Mm-hmm. Um, in any case, the uh, there is a question about why octopi are so unusual and have so many features that we regard as emblematic of intelligence and maybe consciousness without being uh, social, a topic I would like to return to later. I think there's a lot to be said uh, on this topic, and yeah. this uh, little bit may begin to tell us something about it. The the um, Well, the paper did say that they believed that the animal had the ability to override the mm-hmm. response, unlike the touching of a hot stove, yeah, um, which it would almost have to be given what what octopi are capable of doing with respect to moving their um, limbs, and obviously they do go out in the light, and so if that was like touching a hot stove, they wouldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, yeah, sir. I was looking at this abstract. It's 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 a strange paper, but a strange you know, paper. interesting result. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think that's it. All right. We've arrived. We've arrived. We have uh, some announcements, and uh, then then we're done for the week. All right, for February, um, we're going to take a 15-minute break. And for those- okay, uh, in about 15 minutes, answering questions from the Super Chat that you posed this hour and the ones that you posed next hour. Um, once again, the uh, Dark Horse membership Private Q&A is happening tomorrow at 11 a.m. Pacific for two hours. The questions have already been asked for that. Um, But if you join at my Patreon, uh, you will, at the $5 up level, you will have access to that. And we leave it it up as well. So even if you can't join live, um, you will will be able to see it. Although the numbers are small enough that we actually uh, view the chat while we're doing it and are able to interact some. And it's it's fun. We're we're enjoying it a lot. Yeah. Um, you, you can also join Brett at his Patreon, uh, where you're going to be having, um, cool conversations next weekend. Actually, the first one next Saturday will be before our next, um, our next live stream. That's true. It's going to be nine o'clock Pacific. Um, that way that'll give me a little breathing room afterwards. So I will just got to switch that on your Patreon. I've got to switch that on the announcement. Yep. Um, you, we, we need to get out some new merchandise. Uh, and a while ago, you indicated that we might be interested in hiring an artist. And um, applications poured in to our, um, our moderator, darkhorse.moderator at gmail.com. Um, and we have, we have now, and so our, our moderator um, 
basically put together PowerPoints for us. And so we couldn't see anything about who or where or what or cost or anything and just um, showed us all of this art. And we have now um, selected some finalists. And that's not to say that there weren't amazing artists among among. There were quite a number. So many amazing ones. And um, also many different types of of art such that for different types of projects, we might reach out to some of the people who um, who contacted us who haven't yet been, but all the finalists have been contacted at this point. Um, and you can also, you so you don't need to send more art to darkhorse.moderator at gmail.com, but if you have questions, um, you know, I've, I've actually begun seeing um, questions to me directly. Oh, I heard you had a PO box. Where can I send a, a letter? So you can get that information from darkhorse.moderator at gmail.com. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. All right. Uh, We will see you in 15 minutes. And uh, for those of you listening on audio, we'll catch you next week. And in the next 15 minutes, we encourage you to eat good food and go outside. Go outside. Um, Also, what we didn't mention is the Tristan Harris Dark Horse podcast is up. Um, Anyway, it was a great conversation. I think you will really enjoy it. But check that out. Yeah. I'm looking forward to listening to it. All right. Be well, everybody.